Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Donnie Johnson Sakay talks about environmental rhetorics and travel writing, human participation within natural ecosystems, black technical and professional communication, and teaching information design. Donnie Johnson Sakay is an assistant professor of rhetoric and writing at the University of Texas at Austin, where he teaches courses in environmental communication, information design, user experience design, and nonprofit writing. He serves on the steering committee of the Polymathic Scholars Honors Program and the Bridging the Discipline Smart Cities Faculty Panel. His research centers on the dynamics of environmental public policy deliberation, environmental justice, and environmental cultural history. He is currently a non-resident fellow with the Center of Global Energy Policy's Carbon Tech Development Initiative at Columbia University. Donnie, thanks so much for joining us. Your research and teaching are connected to environmental rhetorics and communication. Your thesis was on environmental writing and sustainability, and your dissertation was on environmental rhetorics, actor network theory, and cultural rhetorics. You teach courses on nature, travel, environmental writing, environmental justice. Can you talk more about your nature and travel writing course, what your aims and goals are as a teacher, and what you hope students take with them from classroom conversations? My teaching has always been an opportunity for me to uh, measure, or at least merge, I should say, two particular interests that I've had. And, and one interest is a focus on environment, and the other is a focus on design. And the idea that I have sort of been running with for quite some time is that I've always been interested in um, the creation of uh, technical interventions that can facilitate better relationships between people, um, their communities, and their environment. And I've understood writing as um, one of those opportunities to facilitate better relationships between uh, people and their environments. Um, but I, I've also um, sort of augmented writing in a sense um, to understand writing specifically as design work. And, and so this is kind of something that um, you may have noticed um, traced uh, through my master's thesis, but also through my dissertation, where along the way, um, even if I don't have the word design in mind, the word design becomes more prominent um in 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 the work that i'm doing and and i think what's really interesting is is that what allowed me to sort of i know we're going to talk about research later but what allowed me to sort of hone this focus on design as it relates to research were really a lot of the experiences that i had um in the classroom through teaching so um teaching oftentimes became an opportunity for me to to think about the ways in which um, writing is design and the ways in which we can use writing, um, not necessarily to change people's relationships um, to space solely, um, but also redesign um, space, uh, particularly in ways that it's more inclusive. Um, so the course that, that that you're asking about that I have the opportunity to um, teach um, this semester here at UT um, was a class that um, Originally, I, I taught at Michigan State University as part of the professional writing program, 
Um, it was an interesting course that um, was a um, writing requirement for students in the fisheries and wildlife program, um, but also students who were in the Department of um, Writing Rhetoric in American Culture, um, who were professional writing students, took it as well. And the class was really weird and interesting in the sense that it had been taught um, uh, previous years every two years. Um, and the idea was to either focus on nature, travel, or environmental writing. But most of the folks who had taught it um, didn't really have a sense of how to make all three of those things make sense together, right? Because they're, they're very odd and strange. And so um, I saw the class as an opportunity um, and a challenge to really think about the ways in which we can make all three of those things um, meaningful together. And um, at the time, I was taking classes in um, the geography department as, as part of my, uh, my special design concentration. Um, and I was engaging with readings that were sort of looking at like sort of like critical ecotourism, um, like eco-criticism of like ideas about nature. Um, and I really started honing in on this one area known as um, psychogeography, which really is about sort of thinking about the body as a um, data collection device, right? To sort of think about how we can use our senses um, in order to make sense of space and also the ways in which we can leverage those senses to perhaps put together designs that help people understand space and environment writ largely um, in um, new and interesting ways, right? Um, so um, the class as I redesigned it and I've, I've packaged it and, and I've brought it here um, to, to um, UT, um, really sort of looks at nature, travel, and environmental writing, specifically through diverse cultural contexts. And um, it explores different ways of documenting place-based experiences. And, and what I asked the students to think about is I asked them to consider, right, how can travel or even the idea of taking a different route across town um, evoke different ways of thinking about themselves or perhaps even um, experiencing the world. Um, additionally, I asked them to think about how cultural narratives or even customs that are embedded within place um, can be made uh, more meaningful um, when we sort of use um, writing as a tool of interrogation. Um, but most importantly, I asked them to think specifically about how we can best use writing um, to facilitate the, the sort of spatial experiences of others, right? And, and the goals of the class ultimately are threefold, right? Um, through those questions, I want them to sort of generate story, right? I want them to, to use story um, in a way that um, is generative um, for other folks. I um, want to put them in a position where they're conducting um, research about space and the relationship to space or the relationship between other people in space. Um, and I want to give them an opportunity to, to tell stories specifically through multimedia. And so some of the projects that we've had in the class are um, sort of reflective essays where they think about themselves in relation to space. That's usually 
kind of like a, a, a an assignment that I, I oftentimes um, start the course off with, because how do you begin to investigate other people's relationship to space without thinking about what your own relationship to space is? Um, moving on, um, I've had other sort of um, assignments where like, this semester we're doing a lot of food writing and thinking about the relationship between um, identity, food, and place, right? Um, uh, we're also doing some critical um, sort of uh, readings on tourism. So we're reading like Heyani K. Trask's um, uh, Lovely Hands. We're reading Phaedra Pazulu's or chapters from Phaedra Pazulu's um, uh, Toxic Tourism. Um, we're reading a lot of stuff that kind of folds environment and nature and tourism um, and in, into the same space so that we can be critical of it. Um, and then uh, one um, sort of assignment, like final assignment that I've done, it's like a team-based, group-based assignment that really focused on design in the past, was have students um, construct psychogeographic maps. And, and these psychogeographic maps usually are designed to be fun, right? Where you're sort of like playing around um, with the idea of thinking about space in a different way. And and the original psychogeographers, that's what they did. Um, they would take LSD and do coke and literally wander around um, spaces and, and try to document their experiences. Um, but in this class, uh, last semester in particular, I asked the students um, to, to think about a way in which they can document a space or document spaces in class on, on campus um, in different ways that would help folks um, experience um, space um, in new ways. And I have to talk specifically about a student project because I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Um, they were really interested in thinking about how they can map bathrooms on campus in relation to um, the senses like smell, sight, things of that nature. And um, they did a really interesting thing where um, they sort of figured, well, we can't all map the same bathrooms together. So we need to kind of triangulate our bodies together. So they use like a bathroom on our first floor and they try to use that to kind of, you know, um, create a metric that made sense across all five of them. And then they went around campus and literally put together a metric that allowed them to sort of assess the state of bathrooms. And I think they called themselves shit squat, right? It was, it was, it was so cool. And they put together something called the crap map. So of course we have this thing that seems, you know, just very playful, but when they were able to talk about this project, they actually spoke about like, um, how a project like this is important from the standpoint of accessibility, because if you're a person who suffers from Crohn's, right, um, or any type of um, sort of bowel issue or, or disability, um, you're always looking for a clean bathroom um, to use, right? Well, a map like this becomes really, really useful, right, to sort of get a sense of what maps or what bathrooms on campus looks like. Additionally, a map like this perhaps has the opportunity to change the way that bathrooms on campus look, right? Because it creates the conditions under which um, administrators might be forced to provide certain bathrooms more attention than others. Um, and one of the things that I love about this group is that they put their project on Reddit. And I think within the span of like four hours, they had something like 5,000 hits. Um, so it was actually useful. So that's a little bit of how the class is functioning. I think this semester we're actually designing um, uh, games. And I have to give a shout out specifically to uh, Timothy Alexiak and Allegra Smith. Um, I, I haven't delved into game design um, before, but that's what the final project is focused on. 
And those two have been absolutely wonderful in providing me with resources for design. Your book, Trespassing Natures, Species Migration and the Right to Space, will be published in August 2024. I'd love to hear more about the ways this book is complicating our understanding of space, identity, and human participation within natural ecosystems. Yeah. Um, so I have to say that this book, um, I, I, I've been working on this book since I was maybe um, 17 years old, if you can believe this. I um, have been interested in the idea of invasive species since I was in high school and I was doing Envirothon. And um, it's it's just always been something that has sat in the back of my head. Um, so when I uh, started working on um, my, my, started doing my doctoral work, um, I had an opportunity to um, take a um, independent study with the late uh, John Monberg um, and what we were really interested in with respect to this um, this uh, independent study was this idea of thinking about um, STS or science and technology studies approaches um, toward um, understanding environment and um, environmental policy. Right? What 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 are the ways in which STS can help us understand? Um, particular um, deliberative mechanisms um, for solving science-based problems. And naturally, the work that we did in that independent study led to my dissertation where I was really focused on this idea of um, how are invasive species made. And I was looking at Asian carp because Asian carp, obviously within Michigan um, and the Great Lakes um, is 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 an emerging issue at the time, right? Um, and there are all sorts of um, complicated ways in which we understand what makes for an inv invasive identity and how that invasive identity um, is leveraged to make policy arguments. Um, when it was time for me to sort of think about how I could move on um, from that project, I was really interested in, um, again, sticking with the idea of um, in invasiveness, um, but I wasn't so much interested in thinking about um, how species are made invasive from an identity standpoint. I was more interested in the idea of troubling um, invasion and the ways in which troubling invasion um, perhaps provides an opportunity for us to think about um, what does it mean to belong and, and be in community, not necessarily with other species, but also with other human beings. And so um, what I end up doing in this book is I end up thinking specifically about the idea of climate collapse. And, and what's happening with respect to climate collapse is the fact that um, species now are living in spaces that they previously have never lived before. And they will continue doing that. Um, and if we understand that that sort of trend is happening, and we also understand that um, there is no stop or arresting of, of climate collapse, at least for the foreseeable future, um, what does it even mean to be an invasive species um, in this current context, right? If the world is melting and everybody's on the move, 
Um, I think what that that tells us is, is that there's not necessarily just a, a crisis in identity, um, but there's also a crisis in um, the availability of space. And there is a crisis in terms of our institution's ability to actually like sort of not just address these problems, but also cope with them. And so I spend the majority of the book sort of um, looking at particular species as being indicators of a set of, of problems that put us in a position where we should actually um, rethink what it means to to belong. And, and, and I use species, I use um, non-human species as an opportunity to actually sort of talk about the ways in which we need to think about humans as well, right? Because when we look at um, the Oceania or the South Pacific or, you know, where I'm from and where a lot of my family lives, um, which is um, the West Indies or the Caribbean, um, we're dealing with the situation where folks are dealing with stronger storms, rising sea levels, um, and we're looking at the very uh, possibility of, of people whose homes will no longer exist, right? So if your home no longer exists and you're on the move, right? You have to find a new home, right? And what's really interesting is we have terms much like invasive species, right? Um, that designate what it means to, to move or flee an area as a result of climate change, right? Environmental migrant, climate displaced migrant, a climate displaced person, environmental refugee. Um, but what's really um, sad about these sort of terms or titles that we um, impose on people is that the current refugee charter does not actually recognize climate change as a, um, uh, as a legitimate reason for claiming refugee status, right? And so Ideally, I think um, what I end up doing towards the end of the book is I end up making this larger argument that when we think about belonging in space, we can't necessarily just think about non-humans. We also have to think about people as well. And, and, and part of thinking about people as part of this constitution means that we really need to think about um, what it means to dwell in a multi-species uh, community. And we need to um, sort of address our institutions and modify our institutions so that they do take these things into account. Donnie, some of your more recent work focuses on technical communication. I'm thinking about your co-edited collection on Black technical and professional communication and technical communication quarterly. In the introduction, you all define Black technical communication as an, quote, important and integral part of the discipline of TPC and foundational to understanding how TPC has taken up, applied, theorized, and shaped in culturally sustaining and contextual ways, end quote. You all mentioned how TPC can be, quote, slow to center race and ethnicity in continuous and consistent ways, end quote. Do you mind talking more about the exigence for this special issue and the ways in which you were and still are challenging TPC to address race and, quote, attend to Black experiences, contributions, and scholarship, end quote. Yeah, so one of the things that I'll say is that um, uh, the work that we did in that special issue really um, emerges from the work that all of us did um, as part of the Black Technical and Professional Writing Task Force that was um, convened by then um, Forsey's Chair, Vershawn Ashanti Young. Um, and, and what 
Vershawn really wanted us to do was to essentially create a position statement um, specifically uh, that focused on what uh, Black uh, technical and professional communication was. So as much as I, I, I want people to read um, the special issue, I also want them to, to go to um, that uh, particular document that's available because I, I think that there um, is a lot more to glean from that. Um, I think the, the exigence behind doing that particular work really came down to some of the stuff that you said, right, about wanting to, to center Black experiences um, more within um, TPC uh, research and teaching. But I also think the exigence that emerged um, from us doing that work really sort of came from the fact that um, we wanted to have a place and create um, certain types of work that we could then use um, ourselves and benefit from ourselves, right? Um, the idea is, is that if this research isn't out there, that you would sort of create it or at least create the space um, for it so that you can continue to do this work. And so um, really we were interested in sort of defining what Black um, technical and professional communication um, and practices were. Um, providing an opportunity for folks um, to see um, who were researchers in the area as well as who were practitioners in the area. Um, I think that this was also an opportunity for us to, to sort of advocate specifically for the inclusion of um, certain people who would not be considered technical communicators as actually being central to disciplinary literature of technical communication, right? I'm thinking about, right, um, folks who do Black hair care, right? That is technical communication. Um, but also, I think, again, at the end of the day, we were really interested in creating a space for other Black scholars like ourselves, particularly younger Black scholars, who are interested in doing incredibly rich methodological, theoretical, um, as well as uh, practical work um, that centers the experiences of uh, Black um, people. Donnie, there's clearly a call to action for the field of technical and professional communication through this special issue. I'm interested in hearing how you feel like TPC has done in taking up this call and attending to Black technical and professional communication. Absolutely. I, I think that one of the things that's been really heartening uh, about being able to um, do this work specifically, and I want to give them a shout out because I think it's important, Temptatious, Cecilia, Natasha, Constance, Jayla, and uh, Kimberly, um, is the fact that I think them themselves, they themselves in their own right, have um, also been sort of like continuing the work that we put in. Um, but I also had the opportunity to like look at um, um, article drafts uh, to see um, uh, chapter drafts, to see um, uh, presentations at, um, at at conferences in which people are not necessarily just citing the work and citing this particular call, but they're actually sort of thinking about it as being an opportunity to do, um, interesting generative work that is actually going to expand um, the field of, of, of TPC. And so in a way, it's been really sort of heartening to at least like see that work 
um, happen and not necessarily just um, within the realm of research, particularly within the realm of teaching, right? I've, I've been kind of heartened to look at syllabi that actually center more um, the experiences or the work of um, Black uh, TPC uh, practitioners and scholars. And I only um, believe that that's going to happen more and more moving forward in the future. This is my last question. I'm trying to connect to the various threads in our conversation. In the last chapter of your dissertation, you talk about encouraging students to see the importance of designing spaces and experiences. And we've talked about human participation in and with nature, which you explore more in your forthcoming book. And, and of course, I feel like we can take this same idea of design, more specifically inclusive design to professional spaces, to our journals and fields. That seems to be at least some of your purposes for the special issue on black technical and professional communication. Let's go back to the classroom though. You teach a class on information design at the University of Texas at Austin. How do you help students navigate the nuances of design and our choices and decisions around designing text, images, and information? How do you encourage students to see, think, analyze, and understand how power is embedded in design? Absolutely. So I think that, um, and, I'll, and I'll talk exclusively about the information design class, um, but one of the things that I, I do spend a lot of time helping students to see is that no design is neutral and that um, regardless of what um, the particular artifact is, um, there's always some type of, of politics that is embedded in its design or it has some type of political effect when it is um, dropped into a system, right? Um, and so we read things like um, from the Langdon winner from his chapter, uh, from his chapter from his book, The Whale and the Reactor, we read, do artifacts have politics? And I think that that is a really good opportunity for them to sort of think about how um, things like everyday infrastructure, which we don't necessarily think of as being inherently political, were actually designed with a um, political intent, particularly a discriminatory political intent, and that these structures, these artifacts still exist long after the people who created them have died. And so using um, those types of examples, or an example like that, I, I put them in a position to sort of think about the ways in which design is not easy, design is very hard, but also there's a lot of power that comes with being a designer, the ways in which you can sort of create experiences for people, um, the ways in which you can exclude people um, from experiences or from spaces. Um, and so what I tend to do is I tend to give students um, examples like that, um, but I also um, tend to give them examples where they can kind of see the ways in which writing as design um, can sort of have um, particular discriminatory um, impacts um, or effects. And so we look at things like um, the design of US currency, right? And the fact that the United States government, um, starting with the um, second Bush administration, all the way through the Trump administration, fought um, through the Treasury Department, fought um, a, a group of blind uh, individuals who sued 
um, the, the government in order to make our, our money more accessible. And now we're finally going to have like a tactile feature. But, you know, I explained to the students, you know, in the absence of a tactile feature on, on our, our money, blind people oftentimes have to rely upon weird um, folding systems and the kindness of strangers to not rob them, right, in order to use our money. Or I even talk to them specifically um, about the amount of design that goes into our voting systems. And I'm not speaking specifically a, a, about like how we vote. I'm talking about like the actual um, tech systems or paper-based systems that we use. And I use, you know, obviously the infamous um, 2000 uh, Florida um, uh, ballot initiative, right? Or um, debacle, I should say. Um, where tons of voters were disenfranchised because of bad technology design. But then I also help them to understand that like bad designs with, with voting still happens to this day where, you know, you look at Ohio and things like layout um, is responsible for, you know, 10,000 people in a couple of counties, like having their votes not uh, counted. Or even in New York City, where something as simple as, um, typeface, right? The not typeface, but um, point size actually results in um, people not even being able to read what it is that they're voting on because the text is less than 7.5 um, points. And so oftentimes um, I, I tell them like, you know, these innocent sort of decisions or these seemingly innocent decisions in design um, with writing actually has huge impact when we think about the fact that our elections and the election in Florida came down to like just 400 votes. We now have elections, right, that just come down to, um, in terms of the last election, right, three states and a couple thousand votes. So in a way, um, thinking seriously about design and writing and the design of information through writing becomes really important when you think about the fact that you could potentially disenfranchise people and lessen the, um, the, the impact of, of their community in terms of having any type of political power. Um, so in, in many ways, I think that that course becomes an opportunity to really sort of help students think about how much power um, they have um, through design and writing. Thanks, Donnie. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.